Well, as I said earlier, this week we entered into the season of Lent, which is the season leading up to the celebration of the great celebration of death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. A little Lent trivia for you. The season of Lent is made up of the 40 days plus Sundays before Easter. And the first of those 40 weekdays is called Ash Wednesday, which was in the middle of this week past. The day before Ash Wednesday is called Fat Tuesday, or in French, Mardi Gras. And in true, I think, sinful humanity fashion, uh, it has in many quarters turned into a celebration of sin and of vice rather than a time for repentance and thankfulness for the mercy of God. The word Lent simply comes from the Old English word for spring to mark the season in which, in places other than the Canadian prairies, Easter usually falls. Uh, here, of course, we get more snow statistically in March and April than we do in the four months of November through February. So we're just getting started with what you see this morning. And maybe Lent isn't the best word for us to use. Now, at Thornhill Baptist Church, we have been paying a little bit more attention to the season of Lent in recent years, and we have done this simply in order to reflect more intentionally on the profound reality that was and is the death of Jesus Christ. And this morning, today is the first of the six Sundays before Easter. On two of those, we're going to have guest preachers, our own Freddie is going to preach and uh, in a couple of weeks, and also Sean Tomlinson, Campus for Christ, is going to preach here in later March. But on the other four Sundays, we're going to be in a series of messages that I've called the Blood of the Cross. Now we know that Jesus died for us, but what does that mean? The New Testament apostles and even Jesus himself interpreted Jesus' death in light of the Old Testament. Or, to come at it from the other direction, there were pictures in the Old Testament that paved the way for understanding what the death of Jesus meant. And the New Testament knows what Jesus' death is all about because the Old Testament had prepared them to understand. Old Testament had given them some frameworks, some lenses through which to look at the death of Christ and to know what it was all about. So when the New Testament makes reference, for example, to the lamb that was slain, or our being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, when Jesus talks about the blood of the covenant, or when Revelation talks about robes washed in the blood of the lamb, they have different pictures from the Old Testament in view. And only as we take these pictures together do we see the different facets of what Jesus' death means for us today. So in these weeks, we're going to look at some of these Old Testament pictures and enrich our understanding of the cross, which will in turn, I trust, lead us to a more robust faith and a deeper love for our Lord. And today we're going to start with the Old Testament picture that became Jesus' primary reference point for interpreting the significance of his own death. It's the picture from which the Bible first gets the image of Jesus as the Lamb of God. It's the picture that forms the basis for the theological language of substitutionary atonement, or what we mean when we say that Jesus died in our place. It's the Old Testament picture of Passover. 
The Passover festival in Jesus' day was the great religious festival for the Jews. It was a highlight for them in somewhat the same way that Christmas is for us, with its combination of festive celebration and richness of meaning. Passover was the annual celebration of the Jews' deliverance from slavery and their exodus from Egypt nearly 1,500 years earlier. And the festival was a seven-day festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But the Passover proper was a day, or rather a night. It was the night of their deliverance. And on that night, they would celebrate and remember together what God had done on that night in order to secure their freedom. The Passover celebration included a meal. And at the center of the meal was the lamb. And the central event of the Passover celebration was the slaughter of this lamb that they would later roast and eat. And Jesus himself seemed to attach a great deal of significance to the fact that his death was at the time of the Passover. And in fact, if you read the Gospels, it looks very much like Jesus orchestrated his arrival in Jerusalem in order to coincide with the Passover. On the night of his arrest and his trial, he gathers with his disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem to eat the Passover meal with them. And it's in the context of that meal that Jesus interpreted to them the significance of his imminent death. And Jesus seems to have considered himself and his death as the very fulfillment of the Passover. That his death was somehow the substance the real thing of which the Passover was merely the shadow or the picture or the image or the symbol. Now the, act, uh, the account of the first Passover is found in the book of Exodus. And so we're going to go there first. And that's part of the passage that was read for us already just now. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. And it's in that book that we have the accounts of Moses and the plagues of Egypt and the Red Sea crossing and the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai and so on. The whole book begins with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob living now in Egypt. They'd come there at the end of Genesis to live out the famine that occurred in the days of Joseph. But they stayed beyond the famine, put down roots, and prospered there. Exodus 1 verse 7 says, But the people of Israel increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. And when a new pharaoh and a new king came to the throne in Egypt, the sheer number of Israelites in the land made him nervous. What if they should turn on him? What if they should participate against him in some war? Pharaoh's solution, keep them in Egypt, under his thumb, so enslave them. But still, even then, under Pharaoh's oppression, but also under God's blessing, the Israelites continued to multiply. And so Pharaoh instituted a new rule, start killing Israelite baby boys, population control. Now God had promised to Abraham many years before in a covenant that he would give to Abraham a great many descendants, too many to count, and that he would give to those descendants their own land, the land of Canaan, east of the Mediterranean, that would be their own inheritance, a place for them to live. Now Pharaoh wants to begin killing off the Israelites, 
and keeping them in his own land as slaves. So Pharaoh is setting himself squarely against God's express purpose for his people. And so under the brutal regime of Pharaoh and successive Pharaohs, Israel suffers a great deal. Then Moses is born. And when he is 80 years old, God calls him and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and demand that Pharaoh let God's people go. But God also tells Moses at the time that Pharaoh will refuse until God's own mighty power compels him to let the people go. And that's how it plays out. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Yahweh, the Lord, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Got a hundred gods, never heard of Yahweh. And so God sends a series of plagues against Egypt by which he systematically dethrones their so-called gods. They worship the Nile River, God turns the water into blood. They worship the sun, God sends darkness. They worship the gods of harvest and fertility and cattle. God destroys their crops with hail and locusts and kills the cattle with a plague. And God just is, is sending a clear message to Egypt. Your gods are not gods. Don't trust them. Don't devote yourself to them. Come to me. Honor me as God. And in fact, the purpose of the plagues, more than anything else, was so that the people would know who God was. Exodus 6, verse 7, to Israel, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Chapter 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 17, to Pharaoh, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 22, so that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 14, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. It's a recurring theme in Exodus. God is making himself known. And after the plagues, no one in Israel or Egypt or Pharaoh will be able to say, who's the Lord? They will all know who is the Lord. And in all of this, Pharaoh refuses to submit. And so God then prepares to send the tenth and final plague, one of unprecedented horror and devastation. He is going to send a destroying angel throughout Egypt and take the life of each firstborn male in each family. God said originally in Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23, the message to Pharaoh, Israel is my son. If you keep Israel, okay, I will take your son. But in this 10th plague, this last one, there's something very surprising. When the other nine plagues started getting increasingly destructive, God preserved the Israelites from their effects. Israelite crops were not destroyed. Israelites' cattle were not killed. Israelites didn't get sick. But here it's different all of a sudden. God gives instructions to the Israelites on what they need to do in order to protect themselves from God's destroying angel and to save the lives of their firstborn sons. They are to kill a one-year-old lamb or goat. They're going to take the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the door. And this is what God said. We read it this morning. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you 
and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Israelites, too, were at risk. They are not exempt from God's judgment. God is not judging Egypt and turning a blind eye to the sins of Israel. For in making himself known to all the people, God is not just revealing himself to Egypt as the most powerful and the only true God, but he is also revealing himself to his own people Israel as a holy and a just God. And it was not just Egypt that was a sinful nation. We usually think of Israel here as God's people depending on him and having been faithful to him all of this time. Far from it. They, like the Egyptians, worshipped idols and false gods. In Joshua chapter 24 and verse 14, a generation after these events, when Israel is now settled in the land that God has given to them, Joshua says to them, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Their fathers were worshipping other gods while they were in Egypt. Israel, too, is under judgment for their own sins. And before they can be saved for God, they need to be saved from God. Because sin is such an enormous crime against the perfection of God, we can barely begin to imagine. God is perfect in every way. God is the very essence of everything that we would call a virtue. And this means, among other things, that God is infinitely and perfectly loving all the time. The Bible says God is love. So God never sets aside his love in order to act according to his other attributes. And sin is the willful assertion of one's own will against the will of this God who is Lord and who is infinitely good. It's not our sinning against the arbitrary rules of God, but against that which is objectively right as conforming to the perfection of God's character and therefore to the order of all things. And that's something that we have all done, not just once, but consistently. All of us have lied, we have stolen, we have lusted, we've been mean, we've been hypocritical, we have envied. These are more than just human weaknesses. These are more than just mistakes. They are sin. They're willful, willing departures from what we know is right. And on top of all of that, there is the king of all sins, which is the elevation of anything, something, over God in our own lives. And that sin, not because God is petty and demands to be loved above all else, it's a sin because God just is the supremely good master and creator of everything that exists. It has nothing to do with what God wants, it has to do with who he is. And if God said that it was okay to love and honor something more than it would be to love and honor himself, he would be going against that which is objectively and eternally right. And he cannot do that any more than he could say two and two is five. Because it just isn't so. And all of us have more times than we can count given our highest allegiance to something other than God. It might be comfort, might be religion, might be the affirmation of other people. But we have all displaced God from the center of our lives more often than not. And many people, frankly, live their whole lives like that. 
And this is an offense of the highest magnitude. And every other sin is simply an expression of that one offense. Every sin is our way of saying, you know what, God, I know you said this, but I'm going to this. The very first sin of Adam and Eve was exactly that. I know you said, God, that we must not eat from this tree, but you know what? We're going to anyway. And the sins of Israel included the deliberate worship of idols and of false gods. The displacement of God from the center and giving themselves to the worship of other things. And anyone who has felt the inner conviction of having sinned knows the gravity of sin. And any sin against God is an infinite offense because it is a sin against the infinite holiness, purity, and character of God. In his stunning book, The Goodness of God, John Wenham writes this. According to the Bible, the supreme retribution is death. And death, both physical death and eternal spiritual death, is what sin deserves. Basically, sin is preferring to go one's own way rather than God's way. To choose one's own self-centered, selfish, corrupting world rather than the unspeakable glory of life in the presence of the great, holy, loving God. That way can only mean damnation. Anything is better than that. It's better to lose your right hand, your right foot, or your right eye, says our Lord, than that. If God exists, and if man is made for the very purpose of enjoying God's love, his rejection of that love can only mean ultimate disaster. He puts himself under the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is the obverse of the love of God. It is love rejected. To sin means ultimately to forfeit heaven. And this is the greatest possible punishment which anyone can ever conceive. And this is the punishment which sin deserves. And Israel was in this place, as was Egypt. By nature, by virtue of their own sins, they were objects of wrath, and the wages of sin is death. And in this tenth and final plague, God is coming as the judge, and both Egyptian and Israelite are at risk. If Israel is going to be God's special people, according to God's own promise and covenant, if they're going to enjoy unique relationship and status with him, well, the truth is they can't, because they are sinners, and they deserve destruction. But see what God has done. He has provided for them a way to be saved. God says that each household who takes an unblemished year-old lamb or goat, kills it, and puts its blood on the doorposts will be spared. And the life of the lamb becomes the substitute sacrifice for the life of the firstborn son in the home. And when the destroying angel sees that blood has already been spilt in or for that household, he will not take another life, but he will pass over that home and continue his judgment on the other side. And that is the significance of the blood of the Passover lamb. The idea of the substitute sacrifice, that the punishment for sin is poured out, but not on the sinner but on an innocent substitute. 
And those Israelites and Egyptians who trusted in the word of God and made the sacrifice were spared. But if there was no blood on the door, then God's wrath against sin was visited on that house and there was a death that night. And on that Passover night, those who obeyed the word of the Lord had blood on the door. That night, they ate a quick meal, including the lamb that had been slain. That night, in a picture of judgment that all sins, sin deserves, God took the life of every firstborn male in the land, except in those homes where there was blood on the door. And that night, at last, Pharaoh said, I can't do this anymore. Take your people and go. And that night there began a mass exodus from slavery to freedom, from Egypt toward the land of promise. And that night was forever looked back on by the Jews as the defining event of their history. And that's what the Passover festival celebrated. Now, 1,500 years later, when Jesus' own death is approaching, he looks back now on the Passover as the lens to which, through which to understand his death. And no gospel makes this clearer than the gospel of Luke. Luke's language is wonderful. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 31, when Jesus is gloriously transfigured and Moses and Elijah appear and speak to him, it is his departure, or the Greek word is actually exodus that they speak of his exodus that jesus was going to accomplish in jerusalem then jesus descends the mountain and the rest of luke's gospel is a record of jesus journey from the mount of transfiguration to jerusalem and to his death when it, within a few days of his arriving there in jerusalem luke 22 verse 7 Luke says, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus celebrated this Passover meal with his disciples. It was his last supper. And at one point in the meal, he broke bread and said, this is my body given for you. My body, a substitute for you. My death in your place. And within 12 hours of that moment, Jesus is arrested, tried, crucified, and laid in a tomb. The life of the perfect Son of God had been taken and his blood spilled. He was the perfect lamb, slain for the sins of the world. He was the substitute sacrifice. On him was poured out the wrath of God for sin. By his death, was effected a great deliverance from slavery, a mass exodus from oppression to promise and to life. And the significance of the Passover festival and the significance of Jesus' death is that God's judgment for sin has been poured out on a substitute. Passover has to do with judgment. It has to do with God's righteous wrath against sin. It has to do with the fact that God has made provision for sinners to escape that judgment. And Jesus is the Passover lamb. The Bible is explicit on that point. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ our Passover 
has been sacrificed for us. Romans 5.9, we have now been justified by his blood. Justified is a legal term. It has to do with the punishment for an offense being dealt with, being paid. Ephesians 1.7, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Redemption is a slave market word. It had to do with buying the freedom of a slave. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In Revelation 5, in John's vision of heaven, he sees Jesus, a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. This is all imagery from Exodus chapter 12. Understanding the death of Jesus as a substitutionary sacrifice in which he voluntarily, but also by the will of God, by which Jesus bore the judgment for your sins and my sins and the sins of the world in our place, giving his life. In this season, we remember that the blood of Jesus means that the wrath of a just and holy God poured out against our sin has been poured out on the innocent on the perfect Son of God who died in our place. Now, the wrath of God against sin is coming. History will come to a close, and God will deal with the sins of the world. God will usher in this eternal age of freedom from slavery to sin, what Romans chapter 8 calls bondage to decay. And God will establish his people in a promised land, a perfect land, a new heaven and a new earth. And in a scenario that resonates with the images of the plagues of Egypt, the book of Revelation speaks of the destroyer coming. That day is before us. That day is coming. And we, are on, we find ourselves in history, in that period of time, Parallel to the time in Exodus between when God has given his instruction and when the destroyer comes. And when the destroyer comes and the end of all things takes place and God's wrath for sin and his setting of things right, when all of that comes, there will be those who are saved by the blood of the Lamb. And I will be one of those. I know my sin. I have no illusions that my sins deserve death. And not just a one-time physical death, but hell, a sort of infinite, ongoing destruction. Because my sins, in infinite offense, deserves an infinite retribution. But I also know that Jesus is the perfect Son of God, and that His life of infinite worth has been given for me. He died in my place. And if I take God at his word, and if I put myself under the blood of Jesus, as it were, I will not be destroyed. That in the day of judgment, he will pass over me. And I will be saved because Jesus' blood is on my door. Jesus' blood is on my life. And I got to ask, what about you? Are you hoping that God will miss you when judgment comes? Are you hoping that he will forgive you 
apart from your response to his word? Are you trusting in some other way to make up for your sins? Goodness, religious activity, or some other religion that's not centered on Jesus, who is God's own son, God's chosen sacrifice. Let me tell you in no uncertain terms that the wrath of a holy God in judgment for your sins will fall in one of two places. It will fall on you, or it has already fallen on Jesus. And you choose. You will experience judgment infinitely, or you will trust in Jesus, the substitute sacrifice for your sins. There is no other provision. There is no other provision. But the Son of God sent from heaven itself, from the right hand of the Father, giving his life for us. We have this sheepskin stained on the cross. And, and I look at it and I think, man, that's gruesome. And in the time of sacrifice in the Old Testament, that, that was real blood. And it was messy, and it was gory, and it happened all the time. And we don't sacrifice anymore, and I'm thankful, but one of the dangers of being far removed from that culture and the ritual of sacrifice is that we forget the gore of real blood. We forget the cost of sin, that it really does cost life. And if this looks gruesome to you, imagine... That as the blood of the very Son of God himself. It should be gruesome. It was gruesome. What Jesus experienced in order to purchase our freedom from the wrath of God. Isaiah chapter 53. As Isaiah prophetically looks ahead to the coming of Christ and his death. We're going to sing some of these words in a few moments. But this is what Isaiah says, and he's got the imagery of the Passover in mind. He says of Jesus, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. That's the Passover lamb. We considered him stricken by God. He was mocked by those around the cross. Let's see your God save you now. But he was stricken not for his own sins, but for ours. To buy us freedom and peace and forgiveness. 
And for these next six weeks, we are going to think very hard and intentionally about the blood of Jesus and all that it means for us. The fact that he died bearing the wrath of God for sin is one facet of it. There's also the reality of his blood actually cleansing us from sin. And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks as well. But we're going to fix our attention on the significance of the blood of Christ and what that means for us. As we do that, I want to show you something. On this table here in the front of the sanctuary, there are these blocks of wood that have a nail in it. And on each of the four sides, there is a scripture text. And when we sing our closing hymn in just a moment, if you want to, I'm going to invite you to come and take one of these. And you might want to put it on your desk or on your counter or on your bathroom counter or someplace where you'll see it every day. And for these six weeks of the Easter season, for example, in this block, I'm looking at the verse from Revelation chapter 1. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And I'll read that and I'll think about that and I will worship. And the next day or the next week, give it a quarter turn. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, Ephesians 1. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Hebrews 10, by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. If you want something that will catalyze your own reflection on the death of Christ in this Easter season, when we sing, just come up and grab one of these or pick one up when the service is done. Let me pray. You, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the very righteousness of God. Thank you, Jesus, Lamb of God, for giving your life for us. Thank you, merciful God, for providing a way at such great cost to you 